Hello and welcome to the Thoughtful Realtor Podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Gong. We talk with realtors and other real estate experts about their insights into our profession while hearing some of their most personal stories and practical tools for success. Today, our guest is Farrah Wilder, an agent based in Oakland, California. Originally from Detroit, Farrah was a civil rights attorney before getting into real estate. And in addition to being an incredible educator and advocate for her clients, she is also a powerful force for our realtor community, having served at all levels of our profession's leadership. This conversation is just so good. We get into everything from home ownership and intergenerational wealth within communities of color, the importance of mentorship and collaboration in our profession, and Farah's vision for what we can do better to address systemic racism in real estate. So here we go. Welcome, welcome, Farah. Hi, Kenny. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. So we're just going to dive right into the questions. And I would love to start with a little bit about your origin stories and your families of origin. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and and I'm a Black woman. <laughs> and my parents, I guess, their parents migrated from the South. My dad was born in Mississippi and moved after getting out of the military to Detroit to join his mom. And I think that's it. I guess, you know, we moved out shortly, a little bit after I was born to Southfield, Michigan, which is just outside of Detroit. And I'm glad I'm from there. It was it was amazing. It's a predominant, maybe over time became predominantly black city of, I believe per, mostly everybody I knew was a homeowner. My, my parents bought their home. And, you know, that was just kind of my environment and and my normal growing up. So I think it was a blessing to have that background as I then entered into the world of real estate. Yeah. And what did you love about Detroit? Other things, because I know them, I'm sure there's a lot. Yeah, no, it's. It's wonderful because even though, I mean, my parents were in in tech, so computer programmers, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting, you know, coming to the Bay Area and having conversations with people who are talking about how diversity in tech is so hard and there's not, you know, that just wasn't how I grew up. But then I saw Black people in leadership at every level or various careers, doctors, the mayor for until very recently in Detroit was was always a black person. And so I just saw, saw representations of myself in, in everything. And originally, I went to law school and was an attorney. And even though no one in my immediate or I don't think I have any relatives that are attorneys, but it just, of course, you know, like there's black attorneys in my world. So being from Detroit as a black person in that kind of community and then was so much, I think at one point, it had the highest percentage of black home ownership in the country, I think was just really good for me formatively. Yeah, yeah. Can you, I would love for you just to talk a little bit more about, more specifically about what that representation meant to you in those formative years. Like, did it, how did it sort of shape your, further shape more specifically your your understanding of the world? Um, and I don't think I recognized it in any particular way then, you know, it was kind of like mm-hmm. a bubble. It's all you know growing up, right? Yeah. Like I I didn't think about it. I think it's yeah. when I got to California and Oakland and there's this conversation around, well, home ownership isn't for everyone. And yeah. and I see 
I, I grew up where home ownership was for for most, almost everyone. You know, everyone yeah. I mm-hmm. pretty much knew my my whole family just about, and you know, or you know that there's this this huge gap, and and of course it's 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 probably wider than it was at some point. You know, in my time at California at first, in black home ownership or home ownership for people of color, and how difficult it is, and I just. I mean, it just made me super sad, you know, coming from where I'm coming from. So I just, you know, and even just calling black communities, you know, and I don't think people realize that they do this, but, you know, I grew up in a black community. And so to hear people who enter a community and see a bunch of people of color, so whether black, Latino, whatever it is in a community and immediately knee jerk, you know, think it's a, they call it sketchy. I hate that word sketchy, mm-hmm. you know, you know, and, and what I know about that community potentially is that, you know, sure, it has a lot of people of color. It might even be the community I live in in Oakland. And, you know, just kind of seeing kind of how that works in, in a different kind of environment, you know, that, that, that made me definitely reflect on how I grew up. Right. Right. I mean, it's also, you know, the, the, the narrative can also sometimes a lot of times be is that as soon as you see a community of color, yeah, there's immediate assumptions of the levels of crime or the kind of people that are living there. And I think that that's been just perpetuated. And people in- will say it's crime. And I say, well, did you check the statistics, you know, yeah, <laughs> or is right. it just, did you just enter that community and look around, you know, like what yeah. is it that is suggesting that, this particular crime is, I mean, this particular community is higher in crime. Right. Yeah. Right. And also that what, what doesn't get talked about a lot is the amount of community investment that the people who are living in that community have the investment that they, that they put into ensuring that, you know, that whatever that they can do, that they're still creating a space in a neighborhood that can set people up for success as much as possible true or even if those communities sometimes have more poverty or or have had less investment from you know your the government or wherever Mm -hmm. why why is that you know like even you know folks not understanding completely the history around that you know so i think i think but yeah but and also that there that whether it looks like some other community that there are little businesses within these communities that people love it's reflective of our culture and, you know, just to kind of characterize it in a negative way without respecting the culture of the community there. It does, you know, it is, I mean, it's definitely offensive, but you know, like it, I think it, it happens. And, and unfortunately sometimes in it, and I think you kind of real estate touches a lot of different aspects of life, but you know, it's definitely a factor within the culture of what we do as realtors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So before we get into why you became a real estate agent, I'm curious to know why you became a civil rights attorney and your a little bit of that journey. Well, I just, I grew, I, so when I got to college, I tried a couple of different kinds of courses, just trying to figure out what I wanted to major in. And I was really drawn to sociology mm-hmm. and Sociology was about the behavior of groups, inequality in society, stratification, you know, based on, you know, groups that either had more or less, you know, social capital within, you know, a a space like a country like the United States. And I had always 
read books, you know, by black authors. We went to early on, went to family reunions, learned about my family history. So I was very aware of, you know, slavery. And it's, it's, you know, at least as far as my family goes, I can't speak for everybody's experience. But so I knew about that. And, and Detroit is a is a place where, you know, we have a, a very large black community. And so, so I do come from that kind of background. But then sociology was really putting a lot of it together for me and some of the continuing inequalities for not just black people, but based on race in our in our country and based on gender, which was also an early thing that I worked on as a civil rights attorney. And I just felt like this, these are the things I actually care about and want to work on. I was thinking about what I'm going to do when I go to work. And I thought I yeah. have to do something that is constructive. I wanted to do something that would actually make a difference. I didn't want to the function of work in my life to just be just to make money. I, I thought we the, the function of work in all of our lives should be to be constructive and to to use the the skills that we have and the interests that we have and the passions that we have to make society better. And so I realized that my interests and my skills, you know, I was kind of argumentative in a way, but I liked kind of digesting information and mulling it and explaining it mm-hmm. and, and and plus the sociology. And it just felt like a really good fit for me to um, go into civil rights law because I could use all of these things to really make an impact. And I was really impressed by Thurgood Marshall and some of the, and you know, the work of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund and the impact litigation and the big class action lawsuits that actually made a huge change for so many people and that lawyers were instrumental in that work. And so I felt like I could really do some good doing that kind of work. Mm-hmm. And and then what inspired the the transition to real estate? So I was working um, for the Department of Education Office for Civil Rights, and I could have stayed in law, but I was feeling like I wanted to be more entrepreneurial or creative in how I worked. So I was looking at law law positions or other things, and I just so happened to meet two realtors. On a, oh. on a plane. So this is going to sound super crazy. It was super spontaneous. And so I was going to a friend's wedding in Mexico and it was two legs of a flight and I was sitting next to realtors, both, both legs. And they, you know, I said, we just struck up conversation, both of them, you know, you don't always talk to the person next to you. Yeah. So this was weird. I feel like it was meant to be. And I know this is woo woo, but it, and it all makes sense because I bring a lot of my sensibilities to my work as a realtor. So, Mm -hmm. but at the time, you know, I I don't, it wasn't coming together for me immediately like that, but I was talking to these two realtors and these two different legs of the flight and asking them what they did and how it was. And of course, you know, I don't know what their life was like, but real estate is, is all the things, you know, it's, it's amazing. It's fun. It's hard. It's, whatever it's devastating it's 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 all like (laughs) wrapped into one thing and so they were like oh yeah it's wonderful you know like i got the i got the elevator speech you know like here's my card and so but it did sound cool it sounded flexible and it sounded like interesting and i and i had in my own mind you know i was like oh it'll be like representing clients and really super flexible and driving around in a car all day like right you know, and pretty showing pretty houses you know showing like the pretty TV, houses the TV, the TV 
TV thing plus, you know, the legal representation thing. So, right. you know, in contracts, you know, which I was good at in law school. So I thought, oh, you know, let me explore this. And so like whatever force propelled me to just go and decide all of a sudden to like take the real estate exam and leave. OK, so I left a job that had benefits and a decent pay for me at that age mm -hmm. at that time, you know, and, you know, steady paycheck to not have a steady paycheck and <laughs> just, you know, kind of go for it. And it, and then the market crashed. So, yeah. so, but I learned a lot, but so it definitely was not what, what it sounded like from t either TV or the people on the plane, but but that's what happened. And, you know, I kind of figured this is something I can do. And it's a key piece that my parents were, you know, in two different states and they were getting older and I was, you know, kind of spending all of my vacation time, you know, going to see them. And I wanted I thought I thought I was going to have like all this free time and flexibility yeah. to go see them in these two different states that they lived in. One was in Mississippi and one was in Detroit. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm if I am a, a realtor, then I can, then I can sometimes, and that, which is true, especially in our off season and our quiet seasons, you know, spend more time with my, my parents. And so that was another kind of thing is I felt constrained by some of those systems of working mm -hmm. for the government. Of course, my first four years, I didn't go anywhere. Um, mm -hmm. but, <laughs> but, but that was the part of the part of the equation in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. In those first few years, when all of a sudden you are faced with no paycheck, no benefits, and not the, not the flex, not all of the flexibility or not all the free time that you thought you were going to have. What was your reaction to that? Was it like, this is, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to yeah. do it. Or was it a little bit more like, uh, I'm a little bit over my head. <laughs> I was, I was, Okay, so I may not be the same person now as I was then, but I was like younger and had a lot more energy. And also like, you know, I thought a certain kind of way of myself. I was like, yeah. I can do whatever. I can do anything. And it was very humbling because it was definitely, you know, I was like, I got this. It definitely was not like that, right? Like it's it's in for anyone thinking about embarking on a career as a realtor, like it, not that it's not going to happen. It's just that I think it takes a lot more doing than most people will readily admit. And yeah. so I um, kicked it in a high gear because at this point I had no choice yeah. but to yeah. make it. So I started blogging uh -huh. and did I know everything about real estate? No, but I wrote about what I knew. What I could do was do statistics and talk about the market. I could find other articles and kind of comment on them and link them. I, I, I was guest writing on other blogs, you know, their blogging was kind of rising up. And yep. so I started just forming a community around doing that. So it wasn't necessarily within real estate, but it was outside. I took every single class I could find a take about everything having to do with being a realtor, not just getting clients, because that's a piece of it, but then you got to know what to do with them. So my friend Stephanie Christmas was at the Section 8 Homeownership Office. I learned about the Section 8 Homeownership Program. I did workshops in within my community. You know, I did like, I had friends who felt very passionate about the importance of owning a home, and especially as the market was becoming less expensive, 
you know, they were talking about how really important it would be for us to more of us to become homeowners. And so I did community first time homebuyer workshops and all kinds of things. And so it, it, it wasn't like, I guess it started kind of slow. My first full year, I I sold like five houses, which wasn't bad, but it definitely, they were cheap and it was, each one was really hard. Things you would think it was going to close and then it wouldn't. And (laughs) It was hard. I would literally, you know, kind of make sure that people really understood the process. I learned a lot of what I continue to do during to this day during that process and how important it is, you know, to kind of really support people with information about every step of the process and and how to advocate for people. So it was amazing. And of course, you know, bringing that kind of advocacy background that I come from, you know, like kind of really made it work. I always think about also the importance just of homeownership, the significance of homeownership in our country for so many different reasons, for emotional reasons, for wealth generation. And also, you know, it makes me think about how important it is. It was to be able to say that in the community that you grew up in, most people owned homes and, and, and that being something that is really fundamental or can be very fundamental to helping people feel rooted and and stable in their community. It's true. And, you know, just to follow up on that, I look around and I, I so my business is super sweet. I, I feel really blessed over the years that I've helped a lot of friends become homeowners. And a lot of my clients come to me, either their friends or their referrals from friends or former clients. And a lot of the people within my community that you know, I've worked with. I mean, as as and as a lot of them bought, you know, some years ago at this point. And you know, we go to backyard barbecues at these homes. You know, people have built ADUs in their backyard. They're raising their kids in these homes, and and everything feels manageable and affordable because they have thirty-year fixed mortgages, and they it is incredibly stabilizing and the vast majority of my clients are like, you know, like me in some kind of way, but, but Mm -hmm. the vast majority are people of color. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just incredibly special to visit a friend's home and they own it and they're, they're comfortable there. And yet you also know, and this is, you know, not something to not do something about, but you also know that in Oakland, you know, we have people who are wondering how they can stay you know, like we have correlating to the rise in expense of homeownership, a, a rise in homelessness. And that group has a much higher percentage of black people in it, home, homeless people than within the general population. And so it feels correlated and it's very sad and it, it is incredibly stabilizing to for people to own their home, especially as prices of everything have risen, the price of buying a home or the price rental prices, that people have been able to lock in what feels like a very, very, very affordable um, monthly payment and all of that. That's great. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. And I think, you know, what you're touching upon are a lot of the systemic barriers that we have in our country to homeownership and and I think this relates a lot to your service on so many of the different boards for our real estate profession in, in, in kind of starting conversations 
at various different levels, whether it's at the national level or at the state level or at the local level, around how do we create more equitable systems. So I'm curious to know a little bit about your experience on those boards and what kind of conversations you're hoping to prioritize in those in those rooms. Speaking about Oakland and the East Bay in particular, we have it that from my experience, and this is what I try to bring to my volunteer work, my work on boards is my experience of working in in the community. And I think it's very valuable because those boards often do not have, or those those spaces often do not have as many younger people. They tend to skew older. They're they're not extremely diverse, as diverse as they could be, I should say. They are, you know, there's there's some representation. I'm not saying I'm the only black person or the only woman or the only young black woman, but it's there. It, it skews a certain way. So I bring um, an understanding and a certain experience of some of the pain and pressure points in our community. And I think um, in Oakland, where you have where intergenerational wealth plays a huge role, you have to try to figure out policy that bridges that gap because education is very important. And I do it with all of my clients. But if you educate someone who literally, you know, even if they manage their money super well and understand the process super well, but all they can really qualify for, especially if they have student loans, they may have a master's degree, they may really, really understand, is $350,000, you are not buying anything. You might not buy anything anywhere in the mm-hmm. East Bay, especially yeah. and if you have a family, you know, like, the, like yeah. you need some bedrooms. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's like, and, and you don't want to commute for two you know, you just, it's so the, the, the issue is, is that intergenerational wealth is huge. And a lot of people who I help who are successful, um, have had some sort of help from their parents. Something that I think can bridge the gap is down payment assistance programs Mm -hmm. or, and we, we did a closing cost grant at our association that actually was successful. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. small and I think we should expand it, but it was 10 grants of $5,000 and went really fast. <laughs> and you mm-hmm. had to have not not have extra, lots of extra money after the fact. Like, so there was an analysis of that. And we made sure it would work with lending. And then, you know, that Alameda County has a really amazing, amazing down payment assistance program that's $100,000 to $150,000 a, a pop, depending on your, your income level. So if you make less, you can get more. And, you know, that's helping people who don't have the parent kind of gift to get in there. And I think we need a lot more of that. We also need to make sure that, you know, we don't have arbitrary closing costs. I think uh, the sewer lateral deposit is arbitrary in Oakland because other communities have found ways to meet their EPA requirements without having that be a factor. We need to look at all of the different costs and make sure that none of them are higher than they need to be. I think we need to look at attrition and make, and it would be wonderful. And I think in the past, they used to have this with FHA, like, like 70 in the seventies, but like, look at funds or funding to help people do work to maintain their homes so that they don't get buried under the expense of repairs or feel like they can't afford to make repairs on their homes and also make the monthly payments because this would go to, you know, why people have to stop being homeowners. And I also think that in communities of color, various communities have trauma 
in their history. I mean, and we're finding out a lot of stories that we don't learn in our history classes in high school and middle school, like the Tulsa race massacre. But that's not Mm -hmm. just one incident. Like that happened in a lot of places. There is a book called Black Wealth that talks about like the first after slavery black millionaires and how so many of them, like once someone found out about their wealth, you know, how threatening it threatened the uh, threatening it was you know they would have to hole up in their houses sometimes because people were you know trying to to attack them basically mm-hmm. so we have trauma in our history we've seen so many of our of of our of black people have much higher rates of foreclosure we have um, been given the opportunity to own and it's been taken away in various ways not wholesale but that's in so many of our histories and also mm-hmm. in order for it to be affordable for us or culturally we live differently we do stuff like live multi-generationally like where we like for me you know my my dad lived downstairs in another unit and i lived upstairs and you know we buy homes with friends and try to live together so like creating co-housing communities or people come to me wanting to buy land or wanting to build an adu and so creating more competency and policies and having discussion around the different ways that people of color are wanting to and are owning land and property. And I mean, I can't, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Native American folks and their experience around land and our Mm -hmm. history and how that might impact them in their process of becoming homeowners. So mm-hmm. I think that we, you know, have to be cognizant of it all. And I think also we have to have these kinds of conversations. So thank you for doing that, where we where we talk more about the history and we educate ourselves and we create thoughtful policy. Richard Rothstein's book, Color of Law, Race mm-hmm. uh, for Profit by Kianga, and I can't remember the rest of her name, but I know it's Kianga something, something. So she, that book is very, very educational. We should not make assumptions about policy based on, you know, not having full information. And also I think we need to have, you know, some of the not so, not so hardcore policy discussions, but I think we need to have some really candid discussions around the culture of our industry and whether it's inclusive and whether there are things that people say like, oh, this neighborhood is totally coming up. And what does that mean? You know, mm-hmm. um, and and what does that and what it for the community, you know, some of the things that are going on around the expense of everything and new folks moving in and, you know, within, you know, our realtors addressing our bias and addressing how we think about people who are using who don't have the big down payments and, understanding the history better. I think all of this can work to kind of address disparities and also start to diversify our our community. Because I also think if we as agents are more diverse, first of all, we often work with people like us. Those are our first clients, our friends and family. So that would help. And I also think that we then become a lot more sensitive and inclusive with, you know, kind of how we work with with our clients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the big one of the big origins of these race-specific conversations that we started here in our profession, in our real estate profession, is that according to NAR, people of color only represent about 15% of realtors compared to, you know, the upwards of 40% 
that folks of color represent in the entire general population of the of the US. And to me, that's just such a baffling disparity. Um, it's not a really actually a baffling disparity, but it's such a yeah. it's such a it's a it just is it's a it's such a stark disparity. And yeah. and it's I think to your point, I think it's these this is is certainly not going to change or solve all of the problems that we have, but diversifying our profession can be a really, really powerful way to start opening up some of these conversations of what equity can look like for home ownership in this country. I agree. It's directly related. And I have some mm-hmm. thoughts on that, if I can share. Please, yes. Okay. So, you know, when you think about realtors and, you know, you and I probably, you know, really can remember our first moments as, you know, our first like months and even years as realtors, you know, it is, it is. And as I mentioned, it's not easy um, to get into. And so if your community within your community or if you or your family have less intergenerational wealth, and this is statistical, right? So not everybody who is a person of color has less wealth. There are lots of examples of, of exceptions to that, but this is on average. So we're talking about as percentage. I think that that can impact not only our homeownership, but us as we become realtors because, and when I became a realtor, I, you know, I had no idea, like, you know, I was like, oh, you go on your own business, you don't make money right away, you know, but, you know, it can take years to get a business going and the expenses continue. And especially as a realtor, like there are actually some additional expenses you have to have, like your car, your gas, your cell phone, your realtor dues, licensing, and those with more of a cushion or less student loans or whatever it is are more likely to succeed. Yep. Mm-hmm. Farah, give us a vision of what you would ideally like to see. You had mentioned that there's supports that that we don't yet have the tools to be able to <laughs> execute, but but that would really, really help. What are some of those specific things that you would love to see? I have all kinds of things that I'd love to see. I'd love to see some really more candid conversations within our community about the history of why we have these disparities and mm-hmm. about bias so that right. we can all work together to kind of to kind of address this and to start closing these gaps. I think it would be to me, I think it would be super, super powerful. And I think a lot of it is just that people would love to do something about it. People care, but they don't understand why it's that way. And so I'd love to see us all really, really working on that. And even just, you know, around, you know, some of the some of the images that we have, you know, on TV, I I think that we need to have, you know, more on, I guess, more, more exposure to what realtors really do with all of our clients and what it looks like so that people also, you know, out there in the world, out there in the community can say, you know what, like, that is me. Like, that's, you know, that's the kind of home I would want to live in or those, those buyers right there are kind of like me and know that it's, it's something that, you know, could potentially work for them. And also that, that um, agents kind of start to get a sense of, you know, like what a lot of different agents kind of do. So I just think that out in the world, it would be nice to have more representation and also that it be diverse. I mean, and just making a luxury real estate commercial diverse doesn't quite exactly get you there. I mean, that's also important too, but to have diversity within all the different kinds of ways that 
that people buy homes and the different kinds of folks that are buying homes. And I, I think that could be hugely impactful, like just, mm-hmm. you know, in, in, in the sense of, of how not just within, you know, the ranks of realtors, but within the greater community, like how people see real estate and themselves within it. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking about that, the history, I think like it's so, I think people don't realize or remember or want to acknowledge how significantly the federal government in, in decades past supported and assisted primarily white folks to accumulate their first pieces of wealth. And with the FHA loan and VA loans that were that were just really, really distributed quite widely, allowing people to kind of get that first leg up. And then what we're seeing now is the ramifications of those of those loans that were discriminatory, that were explicitly discriminatory. And now we've seen the impact of it, which has been vast, vast accumulations of wealth that have not been granted to everyone. It's true. And then then when you take it to the next place and read and read the book, Race for Profit, it talks about when FHA loans actually were opened up to, you know, people of color and and within urban environments that because the there was still massive segregation, you know, they they didn't necessarily say it explicitly, but, you know, there were communities and people in the government who did not want did not want their communities that were primarily, if not all white, to not be primarily and all white. And, you know, it was it was yeah. a lot of coded language around, you know, low income housing and things like that. But FHA loans were then given to and it was a business, you know, like, you yeah. know, there's a lot of money to be made in helping black people and people of color who were who were very poor buy mm-hmm. homes that actually weren't in great condition. Right. And then if they were not able to continue to maintain them or keep up with the payments and also all the maintenance or the hidden problems that they discovered as soon as they moved in, you know, they'd get foreclosed on and it would be a revolving door. And so that and the fact that so that is a piece as a is a place where there's trauma, you know, for communities of color and also that it could be devastating financially for that to happen to a family when they were told that this is a house that's FHA approved, no worries. And then they were blamed for not being able to continue to maintain that home. And then that we were given more subprime loans than similarly qualified white borrowers and then much more likely again. So this is talking about more recent history, right before the most recent foreclosure crisis. And so much more likely to be foreclosed on then because our loans were exploding you know, kind of then even in recent history, you know, kind of not just, I mean, sure, like that, that was one place, one pain point, and one thing that kind of widened the gap, but it happened, you know, kind of through up to this very day. And so I think that there's, and then also, you know, we have loans that now are under the guise of the Community Reinvestment Act, you know, under the guise of the Community Reinvestment Act, you can get within some of our historical communities of color or underrepresented communities in Oakland and and Berkeley, there's a lot of communities where you can get certain loans. You have to have a lot of money to get them. And Mm -hmm. because it's in that community and that bank doesn't have a history of lending in those communities, you can get an amazing interest rate, which means that you, like, if you get one of those loans and you usually have to have a big down payment, 
people who have less intergenerational wealth, let's just say statistically tend to be more often people of color, are not able to compete against folks who are often not from those communities who can get that particular kind of loan. So there are things, there are forces and policies that to this day are exacerbating the disparity that we need to look at, understand, you know, kind of really, really like not, not dance around because if we really want to do something about it, I think, you know, we can't kind of shy away from some of the hard conversations. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love, love, love knowing that we have folks like you at very important tables making really, really crucial decisions about about how this all plays out in our country and locally, especially. And I know that you've done quite a bit of nurturing of other young folks of color into leadership roles. So I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on what you do step by step. What are your tactics to (laughs) nurture this, nurture the next generation of leaders? Well, you know, on every level, I guess, right? Like, so from, you know, trying to make sure, like I have a team and I don't have it as officially now, but, you know, I work with, I work with other agents and whether it's been, you know, officially on my team or just kind of informally, you know, I'm always glad to kind of help someone walk through the process or partner on a deal or give someone a client and, or a referral. I you know, we'll always talk about how important it is to kind of have community within your real estate practice, whether it's with other realtors in your market or with, you know, wherever, you know, around the state and around the country. And the thing that, and I didn't realize it, but when I was encouraged into leadership by folks, I'm still connected and friends with, you know, to, into the leadership stuff or into the, it was to, it was like, I was going to mixer. I was going to YPN mixers. And I was like, oh, do you want to like do the education committee chair for YPN? And I was like, okay, you know, I guess so. You know, that sounds cool. And, and then you kind of learn and you do that and you meet people. It helps you do your work because when you make off, there's, there's more than one person usually involved. If you're making an offer, or you have a listing. So it kind of helps you get to know the people you're going to be working with. And, you know, then you're sharing information with each other. And so it's all to me, for, for me, you know, what I think helps me be strong as a realtor, even for my individual clients, it's the ecosystem and the volunteer work that I then do, you know, where I didn't, I'm not saying I know everything, but I've learned some things. But when you participate in some of these rooms, you know, you learn about how the policies actually work and you can explain them to your clients with a lot more depth. So you know, I tell agents, like, it is super important to kind of consider serving on committees or, you know, kind of, or even just going to CAR meetings and sitting in the back of the room and they are open to realtors. You know, you could, you can go to the open ones and learn things. And then, you know, sometimes you end up finding stuff you're interested in and then working on it more. And we need all of these voices from all of these people who do real estate and different parts of the state in different ways coming together and thoughtfully vetting things. And so I'm constantly encouraging realtors I come across, especially newer realtors who are kind of figuring out how they're going to do this, to 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 do it in that way. And in particular, mm-hmm. if you're a new agent, the YPN or a committee at your local association is just a really great way to get started in, in learning things and building community. Mm-hmm. 
And these in these are the committees, these are the tables, these are the spaces where really, really important conversations are happening, right? Totally, totally. And actually, you know, anyone, if you are willing to spend some extra time going to meetings or a committee, you don't have to be elected to serve on like your local government relations committee. And and then there are opportunities to talk directly. Like if you don't like a policy or you don't understand why it happens that way and it's impacting your clients, there are opportunities oftentimes to share, you know, stories from on the ground because that's what our lawmakers need. Going to Ledge Day in Sacramento at CAR and going into a lawmaker's office, even if you're not the one talking, the fact that they see like 50 of us squeezed into like a little like 10 by 10 space, you know, like um, suggests that whatever it is we're talking about is really important and they, they should listen to us. But you can also have opportunities to say, you know, my client is, you know, I have a lot of first time buyers and the sewer lateral deposit is a huge barrier for them because they don't have as much money as the investors, something like that. And it feels so good to be able to do that. And even if the law hasn't changed like immediately, I've seen laws change, but even if it hasn't changed right then and there, you know, you, you can go back to your client when they're asking about it and you can say, this is why we have this law and we're actually working to make this easier for you and that you yeah. did it you know, yeah. and thank you doing it. And it's, it feels so good. So I, I, I definitely encourage people at all levels to, to, to do that. But I try to be a mentor as much as I can. I love that. Farah, what do you love about being a realtor? Oh my gosh, so many things. <laughs> so it, it is, and it's not easy. Okay. So it's like way harder than what I used to do. So I, like when I say I love it, like I love so many things about it. It's not because like, it's, it's a little insane. You know, it is a lot of hours. They're yeah. unpredictable as well. There's a lot of unpredictable hours. And so, but you're like, you're helping people through a really difficult process. Literally, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And to have people feel empowered to do that. And you know, it's life changing. It, and it's personal and emotional, and especially as we all learn, you know, more about more intricacies around the history of it all, it just feels super, super, super important and impactful. And that's what I, you know, I went to school to do that kind of thing, you know, so it's, and people don't even think it's like, you know, realtors are doing this kind of important work, but we absolutely are, and especially those of us who do take time to not just do transactions, but all the other things that support access to homeownership. I also find that you can be really creative around, and this is this is not just, you know, around the the policy stuff, but just as a as a line of work, as a business, you can do it in so many different ways. You can be creative with your marketing, you know, you can volunteer, you can you can do all kinds of things that are super fun and super unique. There's lots of different niches you can do, you know, you can, and there's also, there is that flexibility. Like, so when you, if you do want to kind of pull back and only work with certain things, I find that like only work with certain kinds of clients. Or when I say that, I mean, like maybe you're only doing listings or maybe you're only doing buyers because you need to have more space in your life because of personal reasons. You know, there is that ability to really create your own kind of business or your own kind of flow and that you often do not find 
anywhere else. And I've found that, and this has kind of been a little bit of my secret sauce, is that collaboration, and that's part of the fun and creative thing that I do, is is key. So, you know, maybe not making it be just, you know, only me who has to do all of these this work, but like finding other great like-minded agents or people who are entering the business to kind of work with and, and bounce things off of and share business with has been extremely rewarding. And so all of those things and the way that you can craft it and create it in a way that many, I don't think there's a lot of other ways of working that, that do that has been really fulfilling for me. I love it. I love it. And Farrah, where can people find you? So if you go to farrahwilder.com, so F-A-R-R-A-H-W-I-L-D-E-R.com, you'll get to my Compass website that has all my information, email address, phone number, and my bio. So that's how you can find me. Sounds good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so, so, so much, Farrah. We really appreciate your time and just your presence and energy and all of the work that you put in. It's, it's, it's inspiring. And, and I'm just so grateful. I'm so happy that you're doing this because this is exactly what we need is more full information about what we all really actually do and more information about all of the, all of the important areas that we can actually impact with our voices. So I'm so, I'm so honored to be on on this podcast and I just please keep doing what you do and and I just love it and so thank you so much for having me thank you so much for tuning in today for another episode of the thoughtful realtor and if you haven't already please hit that subscribe button and leave us a review if you've got a friend or a colleague who might benefit from this episode please share because we're all about spreading the love till next time